Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the Sports Business Radio Virtual Roadshow, presented by Boingo Wireless, with special guest, SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey. Now, the Sports Business Radio Roadshow, presented by Boingo Wireless. Thanks for joining us for the Sports Business Radio Roadshow, presented by Boingo Wireless. We are joined by SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey who many people, including myself, think is the most powerful executive in all of college sports. Sankey is going to join me to discuss the SEC. We're going to discuss conference realignment. We're going to discuss the SEC's new $3 billion media deal with Disney that starts in 2024. What's the college football playoff going to look like going forward with the 12-team playoff women's sports NIL, the transfer portal. We talk a lot of college sports in this conversation with Commissioner Sankey. And we're very thankful to Boingo Wireless for presenting our conversation with Commissioner Sankey. I'm joined by executive producer Brian Griggs. Griggs, how are you? I'm doing great. And yeah, Greg, what a a big name in the world of sports, especially college sports and the SEC conference. I was happy that he was available to join us for the roadshow today. Great insight, some awesome answers. I mean, just diving into his crazy world and all that he handles. So happy to have Greg on. Great stuff. All right. Before we get to that conversation, there are some historic headlines this week in sports business. So we've got to bring these to you before we get to the conversation with Commissioner Sankey. Headline number one, 10 years, $700 million. That is the contract that Shohei Otani has signed with the Los Angeles Dodgers. It's the most lucrative contract in North American sports history. Um, There's several parts of this contract that are are mind-boggling. Number one is Shohei Otani's $700 million contract calls for him to be paid only $2 million a year for the next 10 seasons with $680 million deferred until the end of the deal. This is according to multiple reports. So, He could play for the Dodgers for 10 years, and then he could move to Florida or Texas, for example, where there's no income tax, and he could get that 680 free and clear. What it also does is it allows the Dodgers to sign other players during the 10 years that Otani is playing in Los Angeles. The Dodgers are in the midst of a 25-year $8.35 billion local media rights contract with Spectrum. They lead Major League Baseball in attendance. They sell a ton of merchandise. If there was any team that could afford this contract, it was the Los Angeles Dodgers. They've already seen a huge increase in ticket demand for games at Dodger Stadium, for merchandise. Um, Obviously, They're going to get new sponsors from this. We'll break down Otani's contract and what it means for the Dodgers and for Major League Baseball on a future show. But that was a huge story this week. Another enormous record-setting contract. John Rahm leaves the PGA Tour. He signs with Live Golf, $600 million guaranteed. That doesn't even count future prize money for him. What does this mean to the merger? with the PJ and live that is proposed and that proposed deal expires at the end of this year, December 31st. So if they don't have a deal in place, doesn't look like PJ and live are going to merge. Is this a poison pill that live golf basically said, we're taking John Rom off the table. We're going to come get your other golfers. 
merge with us or we're going to raid the PGA Tour of all the top names. We don't know, but it's a huge deal. Record setting, more money than any golfer has gotten from Live Golf so far. So that's our next headline. And then the third thing that I want to talk about just real quickly is I'm based in Portland, Oregon, as most of you know. Um, I've consulted for Nike. I've got a lot of friends inside the berm at Nike. And there has been a story out in the last week that Tiger Woods and Nike may part ways after almost 25 years together. Tiger has only been sponsored by Nike when it comes to his shoes and his apparel. Nike built a business, Nike Golf, around their relationship with Tiger Woods. I don't think this partnership's going to end. I think this is leverage. I think Tiger has all the leverage with Nike, to be honest with you. If you're looking at the top athletes of all time who have been endorsers for Nike, the two that are on the Mount Rushmore of Nike without question are Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods. Cannot argue with Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods being the two most important athletes that Nike has ever had. I've been on Nike's campus. There's an entire building the Tiger Woods building and the Tiger Woods Center on campus. There's a lot of Tiger's memorabilia on campus. Do they really want the PR hit of parting ways with Tiger? I don't think they do. Here are some other reasons I don't think it's a good idea for Nike and Tiger to part ways and they have nothing to do with Tiger. If Nike and Tiger part ways, does Nike golf cease to exist. What happens to the relationships with Rory McIlroy and Scotty Scheffler, two of the best golfers on the planet who are Nike athletes? Do they go away? Do they leave if Tiger leaves? Because they say, hey, the reason I'm at Nike is because Tiger was here. So I'm opting out of my deal with Nike. It could have a ripple effect. But here's the number one reason why I think it would be a terrible idea for Nike to part ways with Tiger Woods. His name is Charlie Woods. He's 14 years old. He has a chance to be the greatest golfer of all time. He has all the resources. He has the coaching of Tiger. Heck, he has a driving range in his backyard at home. This kid has the it factor. Does Nike really want to miss out on Charlie Woods? Who I think, if you ask me today, identify one athlete on the planet that could become the first billion-dollar athlete. So I just told you about Shohei Otani at 700 million, John Rahm at 600 million. Will we ever see an athlete sign a billion dollar deal or amass a billion dollars in revenues? And I know Jordan's done it, Tiger's done it, but I'm talking about, you know, this is your contract. This is your guarantee. I think Charlie Woods is that special. And you know, if Tiger and Nike part ways, do you think Tiger's going to say, hey, Charlie, even though we've parted ways, you go ahead and sign with Nike. I think Nike's off the table to Charlie Woods. And I would keep this partnership alive with Tiger based mostly on I want first right of refusal on Charlie Woods in the future. I do not want this relationship to dissolve for all the reasons I just mentioned. You've got the Tiger Woods Center on the Nike campus. He's one of the two most important athletes Nike's ever signed. And oh, by the way, if anyone from Nike is listening to this, I'm wearing a, a quarter zip right now. I wear lifestyle clothing all the time, whether it's Jordan brand or Nike brand. How about evolving Tiger's collection into more of a lifestyle brand for the 40 plus male or the 40 plus woman? I think they could make a lot of money if they just don't make golf make lifestyle as well and put Tiger at the center of that. And then, you know, think about how you can attract a younger demo with Charlie if you sign him at some point in the future. But this will be the biggest mistake Nike has ever made with an athlete. They've lost Andre Agassi to Adidas, and now he's back. They lost Roger Federer. I would put this as the biggest mistake Nike has ever made if they part ways with Tiger Woods. We're talking about a $52 billion company in Nike. Pay Tiger, get the rights on the first right of refusal to Charlie, 
keep that relationship alive. I don't care what Tiger wears in the future. If it's not Nike, it looks weird, right? If you see Tiger walking around with something else on his hat or his shirt, it just looks weird. He is so synonymous with Nike, just like Michael Jordan is with Nike. To see them in anything else, it just doesn't look right. So this is one of those forks in the road for a company like Nike. I know that they're not doing as much with athlete endorsers, and they change categories from basketball and golf and football and tennis to men's, women's, and children. But you got to keep Nike. You got to keep Tiger Woods in the fold. You got to keep Tiger Woods in the fold. And you've got to have that future opportunity to work with Charlie Woods, who could be a transcendent athlete. And you'll be kicking yourself years from now if you lost Charlie because you cut ties with his dad. And his dad is probably going to say, hey, you know what, son, do you want, but you know they didn't do right by me, so I, I don't know if I'm going to lead you down that road. And my guess is that Mark Steinberg, who is Tiger's longtime agent, will probably represent Charlie, and he probably would not push Charlie towards Nike, especially if the golf business has gone belly up because they parted ways with Tiger. So, Greg, that's my long way of saying Nike, just do it. <laughs> Sign Tiger. Sign Charlie eventually, keep golf alive, make it more of a lifestyle brand in addition to golf for the the 40 plus person out there who wants just some lifestyle wear that you can wear to work or wear to a meeting and capture that audience. But this can't happen where Nike and Tiger part ways. No, it would be uh, it'd be devastating because you're right. It's it's synonymous with uh, you mentioned Jordan, same deal. Like you, you don't see Jordan not with Nike. And uh, talking about clothing, I think they've done that well with Jordan stuff. You can get Jordan anything, you know, sweats, hats, you know, it fits. It's more than just shorts on a basketball court or shoes. It's a full outfit. And uh, I think that's a great idea with Tiger. Like, you know, dress us, uh, us old guys in some uh, Tiger Wood stuff, you know, I'm, I'm down with that. But yeah, he's got to stay with Nike. You bring up a great point with Charlie. I mean, he's the next, the future of golf really coming up. And what an advantage he already has with Tiger as his dad. You know, not, not, a, not a bad way to practice. So I think uh, some good points there. And you know, all these three headlines we talked about today, it's all money driven. I mean, th these are huge, huge money figures. These are just stuff that you can't even think about. Cartoonish. I, it's crazy. And I think the smartest one of them all is the uh, Otani deal where he, he gets to defer that. I mean, he doesn't need to live on 700 million a year or whatever it is. He can live on what he needs to live on and not pay those major uh, California taxes. So I think that's brilliant. Well, and people ask, how can he do this with just $2 million a year? Just $2 million a year. He makes $50 million a year in endorsement money. Yeah. So he can live off his endorsement money for the next 10 years. And then he can tap into that $680 million at the end of the 10 years. And he can do it from Florida or Texas or a more tax advantageous state. All right. Last headline. Last week, if you missed it, we had NBA Commissioner Adam Silver on this show. We talked about the NBA in-season tournament as part of our conversation. It wrapped up. The Lakers beat the Pacers in the finals. But Griggs, it was seen by almost 5 million people, the finals. That's a great number. It's a huge number for the regular season, for TV, for the NBA. By all metrics, this NBA in-season tournament was a success. Player interest was high. The fan interest was high. They set an attendance mark for the month of November. Uh, the NBA did most attended November in NBA history. And then the Lakers really bought into this. And the face of the NBA, LeBron James, was the MVP of the tournament. He really bought into this. So it set a bar for future years that teams take this seriously. Anthony Davis and LeBron took it seriously. Heck, the Lakers are even going to hang an in-season tournament banner <laughs> in the Crypto.com arena in December. That's how seriously they're taking this. So I think these are all really good metrics for the NBA, and it bodes well for the future of the tournament. Do they need to make a few tweaks? Yes. But was it a big success in year one? I would say by all metrics, it was. I agree. I think I, I watched a lot of the games we talked about on a previous show. The courts were great. The uh, the broadcasts were great. Uh, the teams clearly bit into it. I mean, it was like some game seven, especially with Indiana playing in some of those games. Their crowd was going crazy. I love watching that. So. I think you got a lot of good crowd involvement and viewership as you're seeing 5 million on the last game. 
Uh, I think it's great. I mean, it's it's incentive early on in the year. It gets fans excited in November and December rather than waiting till June for the NBA Finals. So I'm all in. I think, like you said, a couple of tweaks here and there. But uh, yeah, let's do it again next season. All right. Next week, December 19th on Sports Business Radio, it's the top 10 sports business stories of 2023. If you want to suggest any stories, you can hit me up at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com on email. You can reach out to us on Instagram at Sports Business Radio, on Twitter at SB Radio. But we're going to reveal the top 10 sports business stories of 2023 on our show next week. Coming up next, it's the Sports Business Radio Roadshow presented by Boingo Wireless, a conversation with Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the SEC. Again, thank you to Boingo Wireless for presenting this conversation. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. 5G is here. Is your stadium ready? From an immersive fan experience to efficient game day operations, 5G is transforming sports and entertainment. If you're ready to jumpstart your 5G transformation, look no further than Boingo Wireless. Boingo is one of the largest operators of indoor wireless networks in the U.S. They provide stadiums and arenas with state-of-the-art 5G networks and support teams across the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, at NCAA. I'm constantly interacting with sports executives, and the reason they love working with Boingo is because Boingo manages 5G and Wi-Fi networks end-to-end, offloading very stretched IT teams. Whether your stadium is looking to support mobile ticketing, cashless payment, or connected operations, Boingo has you covered. But don't just take it from me. Their customers include world-class venues like Soldier Field, State Farm Arena, Petco Park, and University of Louisville. Boingo in 5G. Now that's what I call a win-win. For a limited time, Boingo has a special offer for Sports Business Radio listeners. They're offering a free 5G assessment for your stadium or arena. To get started, simply email sbradio at boingo.com and mention this podcast. That's sbradio at boingo.com. Our thanks to Boingo for their continued support of Sports Business Radio. Now, back to the Sports Business Radio Virtual Roadshow, presented by Boingo Wireless. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sports Business Radio Roadshow. I'm Mike Finley, the CEO of Boingo Wireless. We're proud to sponsor today's exclusive conversation between Brian Berger and SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey. As a former Division I athlete, the SEC is an institution I follow and respect. Uh, Greg has been a staple at the SEC, introducing change and innovation for the conference while keeping to traditions. I'm looking forward to hearing his vision for college sports and the great work his team is doing to support student-athletes. Sports are special to all of us at Boingo. Our wireless networks help sports and entertainment stadiums and arenas power the ultimate connected fan experience. You can find Boingo connecting everywhere from the NBA to the NFL, Major League Baseball, and colleges around the country. The Big Ten, the Big 12, and Pac-12 have venues that all rely on Boingo to keep fans, coaches, and players connected. Whether it's 5G, Wi-Fi, private networks, we do it all to enable experiences like mobile ticketing, live streaming, contactless concessions, and sports betting. When teams need to get connected, they need Boingo and our Converge Wireless Network solutions. And speaking of being connected, we're excited to connect with Greg today for what's sure to be a great conversation. So with that, let's get to it. My privilege to introduce today's conversation. When I'll hand it over to your sports business radio host, Ryan Berger. Mike, thanks so much. And thanks to Boingo for always supporting these terrific conversations on sports business radio. Commissioner Sankey, thanks so much for joining me on sports business radio. Congratulations on your contract extension through 2028. Very well deserved. Thank you, Brian. It's um, good to be with you. Nice to be wanted by the membership for whom I, I work and serve. And uh, a lot of activity and opportunity in front of us now and ahead in the future. So I look forward to being part of the SEC for a while. Let's start off with your overall thoughts on the college athletics landscape. I mean, in the last 18 months, there's been so much movement. Obviously, Texas and Oklahoma are joining the SEC uh, the demise of the Pac-12. Just give me your thoughts on what you're seeing taking place in college sports, because it really is a historic time. 
It is in, in that, that historic time is predicated on a time of change fundamentally. And, and that change has taken place, as you've noted, uh, across conference membership realities. And that's not just at this, this high competitive entity division one, you've seen movement throughout the 32 conferences, or at least many of the 32 conferences in Division One, uh, We're at a time where states are, are starting to dictate more and more uh, policy that governs college athletics, not simply policy, but laws that both establish certain requirements and limit certain activities. Uh, we've had uh, ongoing realities around litigation and all of that is, is part of this kind of environment of change. Um, I've spent more time in, I've spent more time in Washington, DC, uh, this calendar year, really over the last few years than I ever imagined and really in conversations about what it is that actually happens in college athletics, um, uh, the need for national standards to be restored, um, and Part of that is we've seen changes that affect this NCAA entity that is well over a century old at this point. And um, you can look at it and say, you know, it's a time of troubling change. I think it's a time of change. It's a reality. And as I noted before, it creates, I, I think, an opportunity for us to adjust uh, to the modern expectations and hopefully prepare ourselves for a future where we have of people being afforded opportunity, provided education in a breadth of sports. Where does the NCAA fit into all of this? Because I think a lot of people wonder that. It's a relevant question, in some ways more relevant now than it has perhaps since its inception. Uh, we have a need for a national governing body, in, in my view. It, not, It's not just like maybe going back to the the days of of wrestling, maybe before WWE, it may be a poor comparison, but everybody <laughs> had their little regional endeavors. And right. College athletics, we're at a time looking forward to the college football playoff. We're in basketball season leading to the men's basketball final four, the women's basketball final four. I think we've won four straight baseball, college world series championships. You want that national competition and maybe based on the regional nature of rivalries, but we want that national competition. So there's a role for the national governing body. The question is, can that entity adapt? And that adaptation is um, challenging because of change, the pace of change, the comparative slow pace of change of higher education, but also the really different institutions, universities and colleges that form just division one even. Uh, nearing 400, and we're asking for uh, decisions to be made that that recognize the change, while uh, we're not of all all of the same mind or, or philosophical view. I've had athletic directors, I've had Herc Herb Street on this show, and you know everyone's talked about heading towards the time of the super conferences, and it seems like we're here. And I put the SEC at the top of that list. Um, with all the accomplishments that your conference has had. Are we at a time of the haves and the have-nots? Because I look at your conference and I see, obviously, the money that's coming in and how it's going to exist. But then I wonder, outside of those top three or four conferences, how is it sustainable for college athletics going forward? I, you know, it's a, an interesting reality in, in because of the breadth of, of who you've spoken with, you understand there are different answers. There may be certain themes. One of those is about sustainability. And I think the answer there is that campuses have to make decisions that are appropriate for their circumstance. And, and I don't think there, the, the notion of haves and have nots is new. Um, 25 years ago, I led a conference, the Southland Conference. But even then, 25 years ago, a quarter century was different then than the SEC was in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Um, those differences still exist. Maybe there's an extra zero after a comma, but uh, it's not as if you just walked into these differences. Um, 
we've we've made a decision to operate Division One with kind of a big hint philosophy. In other words, a lot of people under this this Division One label, um, and that's where the sustainability questions, in, in my view, began. Is does everyone that wants to check a box and be classified as Division One for their athletic programs merit that designation? Um, and if they do, do they all have to be in the same room making the same decisions? Uh, I think there are ways to acknowledge the differences. There are ways to respect the differences. There are ways, particularly when you think about March and what that means for college basketball and for our country, to respect that there are differences. It allows people to compete. But again, I go back to some basis of national standard that needs to be in place that facilitates that competition. I've said on this show for 20 years, You've got football and you've got basketball. And I would put women's basketball in most cases, especially in your conference, under the revenue generators. And then you have the sports where the, you know, they're the revenue suckers and, you know, they, they require money. Um, tennis, baseball, water polo, lacrosse, things like that. Do you think we're headed towards the day where basketball and football are treated differently than the other sports. I want to kind of expand that conversation. Um, so in this conference, to your earlier reference, I think we are a super conference. And I use that label with intent that we have a level of achievement, a level of support. We've just seen uh, a Heisman Trophy winner this year. If you look at the calendar year and really go back, we had the number one draft pick in the NFL draft, the number one draft pick in the WNBA draft, the number one collegiate selected in the NBA draft, numbers one and two in the Major League Baseball draft. Uh, we are moving into an Olympic year where you will see gold medalists who train on our campus who competed and may be competing right now on our campuses uh, who will compete in the Summer Olympics. I think it's difficult uh, to look at a football and basketball player in, in women's basketball does not generate that revenue, even at, at the highest competitive level. Uh, but it's hard to look at a young person who has the aspirations for an Olympic medal, a gold medal, to, to play in the major leagues and say, you know what, there's certain things I cannot do for you that I can do for somebody in, in men's basketball or football because we create different affiliations. Um, People may, may say, may observe that that's old fashioned thinking, but we don't just have football departments on our campuses. We have athletic departments and those athletic departments are still attached to education. Um, our philosophy is we want a breadth of offerings that are supported well and compete at the highest level nationally. Um, if you make that philosophical commitment, then I think you have to make a resource commitment. And the reality is. There are funds that, that are generated in certain sports that help um, fund and support other sports to have common experiences. I, I don't think there's a lot of complaint about that happening. Um, there may be complaints about other aspects of decision-making, but I think that model can work. Now, one of the questions with some of the external pressures is, can that 20 to, to 24 sport model work? if some of the economic pressures or some of the court decisions or some of the state legislation is actually enacted um, and then starts to govern college athletics decision-making. Yeah, I mean, I get asked the question all the time, will, you know, the secondary sports, will they travel cross-country for games like football and basketball? Do you, does it make sense for water polo and volleyball and tennis to travel like it does for basketball and football, how would you solve that issue? I can answer that question from the Southeastern Conference perspective, which is our decision-making has kept in mind regional continuity, mm -hmm. connection both to rivalries, but it, it, it means that young people don't have to jump on airplanes and travel for an entire day out and an entire day back. They can spend that time if they're in the Southeastern Conference in the classroom, around their academic pursuits, around their athletic competition and preparation. Um, and so I've never thought that there are either ors in there. It's about, you know, informed and wise decision making. 
Now, we stand unique by comparison uh, at this point. And those who've made those decisions will have to speak to their scheduling decisions. Right. Uh, does that make sense? Uh, I think we're about to see that in, in, in really a real-life laboratory sense over the next few years. Just out of curiosity, do you or how often do you speak with the commissioners of the other conferences? Uh, I would say frequently. So we have um, the opportunity for regular conference calls to, to touch base on what's happening, if you will, on a day-to-day basis. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've been in a set of meetings. So I've probably seen uh, my, my colleagues in the FBS level two or three times over the last month. Those in uh, the autonomy category, there are still five. Uh, at least that many with maybe one or two more times, just depending on where we've been. Interesting. All right. I want to talk about the SEC's new media deal that goes into effect in 2024 with Disney. $3 billion deal. Congratulations on that. How is that deal, other than the money and exposure, how is that going to help the SEC? Oh, money's a part of it. So I've never been the one... uh, commenting on whether the projected numbers are correct, but, uh, uh, you know, revenue is a piece of it, but it wasn't the, the sole piece. One really important factor was communication with our fans about game time. The fact is we record this, um, this podcast, uh, we'll have a program tomorrow on the SEC network with our ESPN friends. Uh, identifying game dates. Some of that information's leaked. We're actually this week identifying a few game times. That's months earlier than we've ever announced any kickoff time in my 20 plus years in the SEC. If you fast forward to kind of midsummer around our media days, at that point, we'll have well over half of our kickoff times established. We will know midsummer all of our noon Eastern games for the season from September all the way through November. What that allows is for planning uh, among our fans. Uh, Brian, that was critically important in the conversation. And so it wasn't just about money. So that's one piece, the ability to know up front where kickoffs would be scheduled. We're not going to know all of our games. Some of those may move between afternoon at 3.30 Eastern and primetime window, but that's ours, not like the full Saturday. So that's one element. A second element is... Through ABC, under the, the Disney family of networks, we have more access to broadcast television. And as you see the delta between broadcast TV household access and cable TV household access, um, those broadcast opportunities are, are even more important. Uh, it also allows us more flexibility on when the big, big game each Saturday might be played. So we're accustomed to that 3.30 Eastern CBS game being the best game of our day, typically. That may be a 3.30 game, but it also may be a primetime Saturday game on, on ABC or on ESPN. And so we have uh, the, the kickoff flexibility and the platform flexibility that's really important. The other piece is there are going, going to be plenty of debates now and in the future over, do you need multiple broadcast partners? What, what I actually think is you need multiple platforms for distribution. And right now, under one heading, Disney uniquely provides a set of platforms, that broadcast TV platform with ABC, the satellite, digital, and even the the internet-based providers of our traditional bundle. And then the ability to have digital access through ESPN+. Plus. That's that's a pretty unique uh, ecosystem, if you will, and one that I think is a need. and then the ability to do things creatively with programming. You think about SEC Nation, which is our Saturday morning program. Think about how that might be attached to some of our bigger games around kickoff times. There, there's a lot of opportunity that's presented. Um, yep, revenue is important, but a lot of this is a fan-friendly type experience that um, our staff worked really in a collaborative way with with ESPN staff to come to some conclusion, which we think prepares us really well for the future. I would imagine when you sit down with the Disney execs and you say, oh, by the way, 
we're adding Texas and Oklahoma to the conference, that probably strengthens your position. Would that be a correct assumption on my part? It actually happened after our announcement of the new TV deal. Uh, because of our experience with CBS, uh, the inability when we added Missouri and Texas to grow our revenue under that CBS agreement, we had preset opportunities. And so up front, there's a lot of excitement about our 14 member institutions. And then when we had the opportunity to materialize, uh, even additional excitement around adding Oklahoma and Texas, but we had, we had learned from some past difficult experiences to prepare well for future opportunities. Very smart. All right. Let's talk about college football playoff. Cause that's going to be changing after this year. It's going to go to the 12 team format. Uh, the TV contract is up as I understand it, after 2025. So I would imagine there's conversations taking place about a new TV contract for college football playoff. But where do you weigh in with the expansion of 12 teams and what would you like to see in a TV deal moving forward? You know, relative to the 12-team uh, format, I was part of a subcommittee that was charged with looking at a variety of formats, also considering kind of the wants and needs, if you will, of college football and participating conferences and teams in, in FBS football. And all of the consideration, conversation, evaluation produced a 12-team format. Um, it provided an opportunity to accommodate conference champions that are most highly ranked, but also expand the number of highly ranked teams that are that, that will not be conference champions. So you have this great mix of competing football teams. You also uh, bring programs into the consideration well beyond the 14 playoff. I think one of the parts that will be exciting is in the month of November, where we had a lot of programs excluded in the past, we'll have a lot more who have hope come November 1st next year. And I think hope and the ability to access the playoff is something that is healthy for college football. If you look at, at this year's playoff, I'll speak from the SEC perspective. Uh, the University of Missouri in, in, in Ole Miss would be in that 12-team mix. Uh, they haven't had that experience under the 14 playoff or under the BCS format. I think that's uh, really beneficial to college football broadly. When we designed the 12-team playoff, uh, part of the effort was to make sure it was a national championship. So you brought in a West Coast Conference champion, at least one. And we're in a, a unique position for a couple of reasons. This year, uh, multiple teams could have accessed that 12-team playoff from the West Coast. But then we've seen the conference migration we talked about, where a lot of those teams are accommodated within other conferences. So there's probably some tweaking still to be done from a, a TV format. Um, you obviously want great presentation and a level of, of continuity through the year, uh, but we're, we're fortunate to see an expansion of the broadcasters involved in college football. And so I think that first goal, that first objective can be met. Obviously, revenue is a piece of it, uh, but how these games fit within the expanded schedule will be part of the conversation uh, as well. And from a college football competitor standpoint, we're going to bring uh, essentially a thousand more young people into the chance to compete in the national championship structure. We're going to bring fans of those football programs. And I think have the opportunity to magnify the attention around college football moving forward. Boingo is presenting this conversation today. So I'd be remiss to not talk to you a little bit about tech. I know SEC is, is really leading the way in a number of tech innovations, whether it's communications between coaches and players um, or you know, just the fan experience at, at stadiums. Maybe you can talk a little bit about tech. It, it's um, ever-changing, always evolving in one where we were just looking at lunch. It's um, a screen presentation. So I was at the Sphere in Las Vegas a week ago for you too. So I'm showing what happened on those screens. And then some of our staff who work in our presentation, our graphics, our production of games was showing the other opportunities for how these these video screens can almost come alive now uh, and how we, we talked about how you integrate into the broadcast. If you were here on Friday, you could see right behind me, I was told to 
to the spot actually right behind my chair. And I was using a pair of VR goggles looking at a game presentation. Um, downstairs, we have a whole video center that uh, we built two years ago and continue to adapt to the technological opportunities to help us officiate games. Officiating um, is one of the great challenges in sport, but I think we've, we've added a lot through what we do uh, in collaborative replay. And, and a lot of that's, that's done here. Um, we're talking about, as you identified, the, the sideline, the player communication. Uh, in our championship game, we had um, some in-helmet audio experiences that our staff used because that stadium, Mercedes-Benz Stadium Atlanta, can be so loud. And in fact, the loudest game I attend every year is our championship game. That allowed us to actually have some staff evaluate with some of our not uninvolved um, campus folks. Can you hear well with the bands playing? You know, you don't have these things in NFL games. And in our games, you may have another 30,000 fans in attendance above 30 or 40,000 fans above an NFL game. And so the notion that what automatically works or that what works in the NFL automatically works in the college game. That's just not reality. Um, we led with technology and, and calling pitches from from the bench to the catcher and, and moving from the bench to the catcher and pitch simultaneously. We're adding audio to that. Uh, come springtime, that, that's helped move the game along. Um, with some of the, the controversy we've seen this, this fall in college football, I think we're going to have the sideline communication. We're also trying to figure out the right tablet access. You know, the NFL uses still images. There's a debate in college about still images or the use of video, uh, data collection and, and the immediacy thereof, of how that's integrated into video, how that changes game presentation. All of those are uh, ongoing points of dialogue. But you know what? I think one of our cool innovations has been is uh, just the TV timeout clock we introduced in football back in, I think, 2017, where we, we sat around and it looks easy now, but we are using ribbon boards and stadiums and, and how do you help bring people into it's not a 10 minute TV timeout. It's about two and a half to three minutes. And, um, it was one of the world cup events where one of our staff said, you know, they've got this timer on the sideline. Maybe we could build something like that. And lo and behold, uh, I speak to like organizational behaviorists and psychologists who said, that's just a genius thing to just tell the crowd, I need two and a half minutes of your time. We're going to take this break, get yourself ready, and then we'll go back to play. And, and uh, there we, we've, we want to continue to innovate, think forward. Uh, it's hard to keep pace with change. That's why um, I can make this list pretty quickly because we're trying to keep up. I love it. I love all of it. Um, I know we've got a few minutes left. NIL and the transfer portal. Oh my gosh, I, I can't keep up. I mean, NIL is great. I love seeing the student athletes be able to capitalize on their name, image, and likeness. But the transfer portal, I mean, are we entering the era where we may see athletes play at four schools in four years or six years? There's a lot of people hitting that transfer portal. Well, remember the transfer portal is just a place on the internet where a young person can raise their hand and say, I want to leave. It formalizes the process. What really changed was serving a year of residence. And during COVID, a lot of the, uh, the policies were just waived because we were all managing through crisis. So on the, on the backside of COVID, you had the onset of name, image, and likeness, likeness activity on a state-by-state basis. That is not the preferred way. When I referenced earlier the need for a national standard, but that's what happened in 21, right or wrong. You also had eligibility extension. So people who are older, still involved in college athletics because that was um, kind of the grace given during COVID. We didn't know if we'd be able to play seasons. And, and then we had the transfer flexibility that, that manifests itself uh, most fr frequently through the portal. Eventually, the COVID eligibility extensions will work their way through the system. So that ends next year. We're also moving back to a one-time transfer exception. So the, the direct answer to your question is we won't see circumstances of four different um, experiences in four years for a young person. There, there still is the need for an academic focus and say we'll have a one-time transfer exception that's in place now. Um, and I think reverting to that as a norm for all sports will be healthy 
for everyone involved, coaches who right now are trying to manage rosters, but then the external pressures that come to young people and become a distraction. Um, we're, we're going to facilitate those who just raise their hand and say, you know what, I didn't pick the right place for me. Uh, but you, you identify properly that the, the hair pulling moments come from the layering of, of all these issues I identify. Women's sports. You've got LSU, the defending women's basketball champion, uh, Livy Dunn at LSU, one of the most successful NIL athletes. It seems like the SEC really does a great job of giving women equal opportunity and, in fact, you know, promoting them better than any conference in America. Well, I'll go beyond that even. Uh, when you look at women's basketball, the last two national championship teams come from the SEC, South Carolina, and then LSU. True, you're Carolina right. Is back at number one right now. You mentioned Olivia Dunn. Uh, Sunny Lee, a gold medalist all around, uh, competed at Auburn. That was part of product of the new opportunities that are there. But I think you could watch her speak to her experience and how, how much she cherished the college environment, uh, the campus experience. Uh, we just honored uh, Trinity Thomas, uh, a gymnast from the University of Florida, who set the record for the most perfect tens. The women's gymnastics competition. And I can go on. Sydney McLaughlin, uh, Parker Valby, Sydney, who's moved from Kentucky, is now competing internationally, will be, I think, part of our Olympic team. Uh, Parker just won the women's cross country individual national championship. Uh, we had more women's volleyball teams selected to participate in the NCAA tournament than in any other conference. Uh, or when soccer improvements spectacular. Uh, when we had uh, Texas and Oklahoma, as excited as people are about football, our women's sport competition will be second to none across the board. And, and what we've learned over time, you go back to Pat Summit, Pat made every one of our women's basketball programs better to this day, setting a standard. And so we're going to be setting standards for a long time that will elevate all of our member institutions, teams, um, and position us for national champion in, in as I talked about the ease of travel, the ability to prepare, to be on incredible campuses, to be in the South where the weather is generally pretty great uh, year round, uh, and then have these new opportunities. It's an exciting time to be a, a young person, particularly a young woman um, in college athletics in the Southeastern Conference. Last question before I let you go. My research tells me you've participated in 41 marathons. Where did this passion for marathons come from? Well, that's a really good question. Um, <laughs> I've, I've had friends who say, you know, somebody who's running that long uh, and that far is running from something. So you need to look at what that might be. Uh, you know, I ran my first marathon uh, on November 6, 1988. It was the Marine Corps Marathon in Washington, D.C. I can remember the date because... My wife and I were married November 5th, 1988. So after our wedding, I ran my first marathon. And there's something something in that as well. We just passed our 35th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Uh, and it took me a while to run the second marathon. Uh, I love the, the physical benefit from running, the ability to throw a pair of shoes in a suitcase when you're traveling with shorts and a T-shirt and just go out for a run. Um, and I always viewed the marathon as a mental challenge in a chemistry test. And the mental challenge was, can you move maybe beyond your comfort zone in preparation, but then perhaps in the race, go a little bit faster and see if you can push and finish. Because every time I showed up at the start line, I was nervous about being able to finish. And then the chemistry test was internal. Can you manage your heart rate, your respiration, your, your intake? how you prepared leading up. Um, it, it just resonated with me really in middle age. It was in my forties. I did most of those marathons and, um, did them in a lot of different places. Um, got to meet some, some neat people. Um, and you know, it, it's, it's amazing. It's a conversation when a thousand miles plus of my life has been spent running marathons. And, uh, I, I look back at that, all of those experiences with great fondness. I'm more of a half marathon or 15 here right now. It's a little bit easier to walk the next day after you run those distances. I bet I can imagine it's great that you continue to do that. 
Uh, Commissioner Zanke, thank you so much for joining us on Sports Business Radio. I know I need to let you go. Congratulations on the success of the conference. What's to come? You guys really do set the standard for everyone else. And I appreciate uh, the insight you provided today. Thank you. It's uh, it's an honor to, to be in this conversation, an honor to lead where I do. And we're really excited about the future of the Southeastern Conference. 5G is here. Is your stadium ready? From an immersive fan experience to efficient game day operations, 5G is transforming sports and entertainment. If you're ready to jumpstart your 5G transformation, look no further than Boingo Wireless. Boingo is one of the largest operators of indoor wireless networks in the U.S. They provide stadiums and arenas with state-of-the-art 5G networks and support teams across the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, and NCAA. I'm constantly interacting with sports executives, and the reason they love working with Boingo is because Boingo manages 5G and Wi-Fi networks end-to-end, offloading very stretched IT teams. Whether your stadium is looking to support mobile ticketing, cashless payment, or connected operations, Boingo has you covered. But don't just take it from me. Their customers include world-class venues like Soldier Field, State Farm Arena, Petco Park, and University of Louisville. Boingo in 5G. Now that's what I call a win-win. For a limited time, Boingo has a special offer for Sports Business Radio listeners. They're offering a free 5G assessment for your stadium or arena. To get started, simply email sbradio at boingo.com and mention this podcast. That's sbradio at boingo.com. Our thanks to Boingo for their continued support of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for listening to the Sports Business Radio Virtual Roadshow, presented by Boingo Wireless. Thanks also to our team at Sports Business Radio, Brian Griggs, Josh Blank, Ryan Nakajima, Nicole Wardle, and Jeff Payne. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, threads and Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Sports Business Radio is produced by Griggs Productions.